0: What's up, just trying to get your attention with some old school Jason Becker shredding at a clinic he did in Atlanta back in 1989 Okay, first things first, if you want to help out your brother Jason Becker, buy his new record. It's called Triumphant Hearts, and you can find out all about it on his website, jasonbecker.com. And of course, I think you're going to want to buy it anyway after you hear this episode that's about to hit you. Wow, Jason Becker on the show. The show is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and guitarplayer.com. Guitar player, play better, sound better. that amazing. That's how the album opens. Triumphant Hearts, the new record from Jason Becker, which, as I just mentioned, you can check out or purchase at jasonbecker.com Amazing. He wrote that shit with his eyes. More on that in a bit. But some of you might be like, man, Jude, so cool you got Jason on the show, but you know, I've listened to the last 88 episodes and the format is that you always plug in and play guitar with your guests. What are you going to do this time? Jason hasn't played a guitar in over 25 years probably. Well, you know, Jason doesn't play guitar anymore, but he very much plays guitar players That's the lead part he wrote for Marty Friedman. Yeah, that's Marty Friedman playing on that track. Jason and Marty, of course, are dear friends that go all the way back to when Jason was 17 and they exploded with the adventure metal duo called Cacophony, two-headed guitar sickness. So we're gonna hear all kinds of music. You know, Jason, he reminds me of like this Quincy Jones interview where Quincy said, man, it's not just about playing an instrument or something like that. He said, I can make a band sing. That's pretty good. Jason can make a band sing, an orchestra sing, as you're gonna hear. But I know the next question some of you might be asking, man, Jason, he has ALS, right? He has Lou Gehrig's disease. How do you interview a guy who can't even really speak? Well, Jason, of course, can speak. He spells out phrases with his eyes and his caregiver, close friends, whoever, say them out loud for him. For example, when I mentioned the name Marty Friedman to him, this is what he said.
1: T-H-A-that-P-O-S-E-R, that poser. That poser. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jason's really funny. He always cracks me up. Of course, he loves Marty like a brother. And the thing is... While I'm putting this together, I noticed, you know what? I could just take a liberty here, and uh, instead of having him spell out everything, I can shorten these things. So you just kind of hear the end of the phrase. So instead of hearing that whole thing, you might hear me just shorten stuff as follows. That poser. (laughs) That is the voice of Marilyn White. She'll be speaking for Jason 99% of the time on this episode. She's, of course, his dear friend, I think an ex-girlfriend and just a caregiver and probably part of his family by this point. You know what I'm saying? It's all about family up there, keeping Jason going all these decades. It's really quite a story. I recommend you check out the Jason Becker documentary called Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet, directed by Jesse Vile. You won't forget it. Chronicling this unbelievably talented youth as he lands a gig with David Lee Roth, filling in the shoes of... Eddie Van Halen and Steve Vai before him as Roth's right-hand man. And they record the album, A Little Ain't Enough. During which time, Jason starts to feel a limp in his leg that seems kind of odd and is soon diagnosed with ALS. A very somber diagnosis. They give him three to five most people die after three to five years with a disease but I guess Jason heard three to five and he thought they were talking about decades cuz doesn't seem like anything's stopping him alright well I'm excited because we're gonna fire up this chopper here and head up through the cold winter rain to the Bay Area to Richmond California Jason's home turf where he grew up across the bridge in north of San Francisco across the Bay He lives on a hill. He has a beautiful view. I'll post a picture of that on the Facebook page. No Guitar Is Safe Facebook page. And of course, I'm excited because we're not only going to talk to Jason, we're also going to talk to people very close to him, such as his father, Gary, Gary Becker, who also is an accomplished classical guitarist. By the way, in addition to being an artist, And yeah, we're also going to talk to some other people who are very close on Team Becker who helped make the new record and helped make a lot of things happen for Jason over the years, including Mike Bemisterfer, Dave Lopez, Dan Alvarez, and Matt Blackett. And as we cruise up there, remember the words of Joe Satriani on Episode 1 of No Guitar Is Safe. Keep it alive to you, 95. Okay, this is not Jason Becker music right here. This is JGB, the first touring band I was ever in that featured four original members of the Jerry Garcia band, including Gloria Jones, who's singing here. She was just amazing. That's from a gig we did somewhere in America in 1999. I only include this because this is the reason I was up in Jason's neck of the woods in the first place. I was there to say goodbye to Gloria. She died peacefully in her 70s. I went to her funeral in East Oakland. It was wonderful. I mean, full-on Baptist treatment, gospel choir, Hammond B3. What a great send-off. And we said goodbye, and afterwards... Well, I'm driving down East 14th, as I still like to call International Boulevard, and my phone rings. It's Mike Bemisterfer. Mike B, as we like to call him. Happens to be a mutual friend of me and Jason's. I've known Mike since around the same time that he met Jason. 17 years old, 18 years old. He used to tell me about this guy named Jason Becker, who was just destroying it on the guitar. You always hear about that. And you're like, I'm sure this guy's amazing, but can he be as amazing as these like superlatives that you're putting upon him? Well, a little while later, he's like, yeah, Jason got the David Lee Roth gig. I was like, wow, okay, I feel you now, Mike. I get what you're saying about Jason, because that was the biggest gig you could possibly get in 1990. As Matt Blackett, my longtime associate from Guitar Player Magazine, said, it was like starting with a team where you're following in the footsteps of two hall of fame nfl quarterbacks we're gonna meet matt and the gang pretty quick here but this is a newly released track jason did with roth in those sessions and of course it is on triumphant hearts the new record So anyway, I digress. I get this random phone call from Mike Bemisterfer. He's just calling to say hi. We used to be in a band together. And he's like, what? You're in the Bay Area? Well, we got to hang. We're trying to like make a coffee date, but no times are working. So Mike, who always has great ideas, is like, hey, you know what? Let's go over to Jason's house tomorrow afternoon and watch the NBA All-Star stuff that they're doing. You know, like the three-point contest and the dunking contest. It's always fun to watch sports at Jason's house. I'm like, cool. So it's the next day and I'm driving over to Jason's and it just dawns on me. You know what? We've been talking about doing the podcast for a couple years now. And when is it actually going to happen? This is the night. Got to do this. But my recorder's in LA, my Zoom recorder, my mics, everything. So then I realized, you know what? It's iPhone time. Long story short, for this episode, every interview was recorded on an iPhone. And unless otherwise totally obvious, every excerpt of music we'll hear will be an excerpt from Triumph in Hearts, Jason's new record. Like this one, which is based around a guitar solo Jason had on a four-track cassette tape, an old idea for a cacophony song. And he built everything around it. So yeah, I mentioned Jason has a great view outside his window, but you know he also has a great view from within his house in his main room. He's just looking at a wall of cool guitars, including his Kiesel signature models, which you can get. That's another way to help Jason. Grab a Kiesel Jason Becker model with the cool refrigerator magnet number inlays, colorful, so cool. You can also snag the Seymour Duncan pickup, Jason Becker perpetual burn humbucker. Anyway, you know, as I'm walking in there, I'm always reminded of the great players that have hung out there in Jason's house and played guitar for him, including Uli John Roth, Michael Lee Furkins, Richie Kotzen, so many. Marty Friedman, of course, Neely Brosh, Greg Howe, Gretchen Men, Danielle Gotardo, Ben Woods, Dave Shule. Am I leaving anybody out, Jason?
1: W-E? Well, Eddie Van Halen was a lot of fun.
0: Yes, that's Jason speaking through Marilyn's voice. And wow, EVH in the house. You know, Mike B was there. Mike remembers that day.
2: That's actually, I have a really, really very clear memory about that. Hang. So um, Eddie came over before doing the Jerry Lewis telephone. And he and the manager came in. It was just totally key. chill, low key, sweet as could be. You know, just he was all emotional, hugging everyone, couldn't have been cooler. Um, but the thing that I remember, like super clear, was that Jason had a little PV practice amp. And when people come by, people would he'd plug into that amp. It was a small amp. And whatever guitar happened to be there, and he asked Eddie to play. And um, when Eddie played, it sounded just like Eddie Van Halen. I know that seems like a funny thing to say, but you know, you hear all about, oh, the EVH guitar and and the amp and the this and the stacks and the blah, blah, blah. No, it was was those moments where I went, oh, it's all in his fingers. I mean, and it sounded exactly like him right on the records coming out of that little PV amp. And that was the thing that really blew my mind was that it's just, it's, Eddie was just pure 100% magical Eddie, no matter what instrument you put in his hand.
1: My mom is so proud because she had to tell him, turn up the volume.
0: <laughs> I'm guessing this meeting with Eddie Van Halen was in the early 90s before Jason's ALS fully kicked in and before, you know, he got a tracheostomy so that the breathing machine could go through the bottom part of his throat. That's right, fools. Jason is bionic.
1: It was, it was bittersweet because I was losing my voice and hadn't yet started I hadn't yet yet started using the spelling system wow but Serrano
0: Serrano she's another of Jason's longtime soulmates turned caregiver turned family you know those arpeggios that we heard at the very beginning of this episode were from a piece dedicated to Serrano and I think she's actually credited with helping create this diet that Jason's on that's helped him beat the odds all these years
1: Serrano was feeding me and Eddie picked crumbs off my face. Wow, shit. I am gonna make myself cry.
0: You're gonna make (laughs) me cry. But don't worry, this is not an episode about making you cry. Of course, this is an episode about musical triumph.
3: When I was young and full of wonder
0: That is the amazing Codeny Holiday singing. Dan Alvarez remembers when he first talked to Codeny on the phone to book him for the session. Dan, of course, as you might know, is a co-producer of this album with Jason and also helped a lot with the arrangements. Dan's a super musical cat. I've done sessions for him, and uh, he's a friend. And he worked with Jason every step of the way on
4: this record, as well as previous records. When Holiday came in and sang, it it really... He surprised me, because when I talked to him on the phone, he was very quiet, and he barely spoke, and I, I... You know, I was a little concerned. And then, you know, he finally came to the house, and I set the microphone up, and he started singing, and I... I just, my jaw just hit the floor. We were. Everybody was just flabbergasted by his singing.
1: That improv is all him. We just hit record, yeah.
0: Even Mike B, who is the executive producer of Jason's new record, he was freaking out as well. Because, you know, Mike can hit some stratospheric high notes as a singer, too. I used to be in a band with him, as I mentioned.
2: I mean, those are some crazy notes. And he's just hitting them all just like it's nothing.
5: I mean,
0: it was he's amazing. That's one of Jason's MOs, you know, create a musical springboard that allows people to soar. Of course, Jason also composes a lot of the lead stuff too, such as the intro solo on this song performed by Andrew J. composed moments on this record involving lead guitar. Like how about Chris Broderick on Nylon String and Uli John Roth on Electric on this song. This record is just a tour de force. It's just amazing how Jason put it together. I asked him like, what would be the most surprising thing about his musical process that people would not know necessarily?
1: Maybe that when writing the stuff my my caregiver doesn't have to know anything about music. I pencil everything in and make it musical later while editing.
0: Jason says he does do a lot of writing in his mind while looking at the guitars on his wall, although I'm sure he can see the fretboard perfectly even with his eyes closed. But it's amazing what it translates to, even in single note lines such as this crazy violin break you remember from the beginning of the show.
1: You know, Daniele directed the violin sessions, that fast part. I don't know how Glauco did it.
0: You know, it's kind of funny. None of us really felt confident in how to pronounce Glauco's full name. So I just texted Daniele, Daniele Gotardo, Italian guitar virtuoso, who directed the sessions and said, hey, man, will you pronounce it for us? Glauco Bertagnina. Thank you, Daniele. You know what? I'm going to start doing every single episode on smartphones. Just kidding. Back to that violin break though, Jason says it was a piece of cake.
1: It was simplest part to write because that was that was sort of my wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think those are 128th notes in there. <laughs> I actually beg to differ with Jason on this one because I think there's an even easier part that he wrote because I played it. He actually had me play a solo on the record on this very great Bob Dylan song. I think you might recognize it. It's the only song on the record Jason didn't write. No 128th notes on that one.
3: How many times can a man look up
0: That's Gary Rosenberg on the vocals. Before
3: can see the sky.
0: I like to joke to Jason that he sounds the way Bob Dylan would sound if Bob Dylan could sing, which Jason laughed at. But you know what? That's not a slam on Bob Dylan. I love that song, blowing in the wind. And I love Bob Dylan too, you know? I probably started playing guitar because of Bob Dylan because my father used to pick up that steel string and sing me this very song when I was just the littlest of kids, like four years old. Nice to play with Gary on that, who's also along with Mike, an executive producer of the album. Thank you, Jason. And what's interesting is Jason always thanks you for playing, like this is the only time I've ever worked for him, but I imagine he told everyone else too, thank you for making my part sound human. What an honor. That's the thing about Jason, too, that I really like is that he's always interested in you. Like, you know, when you go up to Jason's house, the first thing he's going to do is ask you about you, what you're doing. How's your band? How's things going? He asked me all about my tour to New Zealand opening for Toto. I love that, Jason. Matt Blackett knows what I'm talking about. Matt is my longtime friend and associate from Guitar Player Magazine since the year 2000. Killer guitar player. And also, of course, a much longer friend of Jason's. He knew Jason back in the day when Jason used to come into the music store that Matt
6: worked at, Music Works in El Cerrito. I remember the last time I talked to Jason when he could talk with words. Uh, it was at an AM show uh, shortly after the David Lee Roth record had come out. He was walking with a cane at the time, but still getting around. And I went up to him, reminded him about the Music Works connection and everything, and he um, he was. So cool and so kind and just gracious and just a beautiful person. And then right after that, some little kid recognized him and came up and wanted to meet him. And he was every bit as kind and generous and gracious to this kid. And I remember thinking like, God, I... I complained about everything in those days, okay? And I thought like, oh, I should have had that gig and I should have had this and I got screwed out of that and I <laughs> really had a very it's a, a, a bitter outlook on a lot of stuff. And then here's this guy who through no fault of his own had just had the greatest gig on the planet yanked right out from under him and that was the least of his worries. He's got this whole physical thing that he's dealing with and all that and he could be cool and and grateful and nice and kind and i'm thinking where do i get off complaining about my situation and i don't want to shock anyone who knows me but i i kind of still complain about things a little bit but i learned a lot from that i really really did and it was amazingly inspiring and just so so cool to see that and boy it's if 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 he can be gracious and grateful, then boy, I have no excuse and nor do any of us.
0: It's true what Matt says. You know, like when I leave Jason's house, I swear to you, I literally do not complain for a good solid 15, 20 minutes. Then my raw human nature kicks back in. (sighs) Uh, We're all human. Now, I got to say, I'm proud that I did write one feature article in Guitar Player Magazine on Jason once. But if there's one true evangelist for Jason in print magazines over the years... It has to be Matt Blackett. Matt has a new feature out right now called Victory Lap in a recent issue of Guitar Player Magazine, all about Jason and the new record. But Matt also wrote the first Guitar Player Magazine cover story on Jason a few years ago. The cover headline proclaimed Jason to be the greatest shredder of all time. And I agree. I asked...
6: Matt, to defend that statement. So I first met Jason back in 1990 when I was teaching guitar at Music Works, And Jason lived not far from there. And he popped in one day and said he was on his way to audition for David Lee Ross Band. And he bought an Elise's Quadriverb. And I remember saying after he left, he's not going to get that gig. It wasn't because the guy couldn't shred. Obviously, he could shred. But I had a real hard time imagining that a local guy could be that guy, right? Because I assume they probably were auditioning guys from all over the world. Uh, everybody wanted that gig, most coveted gig in rock, I would think. And I guess it was about a week later, Jason's dad, Gary, came into the store and the owner said, hey, did your son get that gig with David Lee Roth? And he said, yeah, he did. And it was an amazing thing for me because now we had this guy who just essentially lived down the street who got the biggest gig in the world. And it was an amazing thing again i just had such a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that a local guy could do that right and when i was at guitar player magazine i think i always had a problem covering local guys because it's like yeah i guess i never wanted it to seem like oh the only reason they're in the magazine is because you know them or because they're a bay area guitarist and that's where you guys are and we never wanted that kind of perception in there but then now that you have a little bit of space to look back on this, you go, wow, we really do have all these world-class players here in the area, and it shouldn't be held against them that they're Bay Area guys. <laughs> they deserve the coverage and the love as much as anybody. And yeah, that's certainly true with Jason, and it it took me a long time to really figure out exactly how great he was. I think the turning point, even though I'd heard a lot of great music from him, the turning point for me was truly when i saw the footage of him doing the clinic at that atlanta institute of music or whatever it is it's all online it's it's just the most amazing high energy rock playing that i've ever seen or heard And all of it is great. He's so cool, and he's just making jokes and rolling his eyes and doing all the stuff that he does. But the the playing is absolutely jaw-dropping. And there are a couple things you can search on for it. Like, uh, I think one's just, it might be called tapping. And he hilariously said, well, one thing I'm not is a tapper. And then he proceeds to just do absolutely incredible tapping. But what he does after that is he plays the intro to Hot for Teacher, but he doesn't tap it. He picks every note. And I I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe something like that could be possible. And since then, I've heard the, the demo that he submitted to Dave where he recorded that tune. And I believe it's two tracks of guitar for the intro, one where he's picking every note and then one where he's tapping every note. It's just... It's unreal. It's just absolutely unfair. I didn't see any of this footage until just a few years ago, and I really had some perspective at that time. And when I first When Jason first came up, there were a lot of people coming up around that time and it was easy for them to, in a sense, kind of blur together because everybody was great. All the shrapnel guys, they were all very impressive and Jason was one of those guys. But then with the benefit of hindsight, having lived a little bit and studied a lot of different players, then I really did start to see the things that set him apart with all due respect to everybody that he might very well get compared to or lumped in with or whatever. I I really think the thing with Jason is just, and I learned this from you, that you said most players can hope to go for like an Ingve level of profi- technical proficiency or an Eddie Van Halen style swagger, but it's very rare to see both of those traits in one player. And Jason absolutely has that. And I think that's a quote you gave me for that cover story I did on him. And it's, I think that sums it up as best as you can, that he has all the technique in the world when you listen to his playing, but he had the sense of humor and he had the the swagger and the soul and the, the swing. And I really don't see how it's possible uh, because it's just, it's not at all, to, it's not easy to have any of that stuff, but to be able to mix it all together Uh, like he could do so effortlessly, it really, for me, that was it. And so when we put him on the cover and I did that story and called him the greatest shredder ever, I do believe that. And I do think he was the greatest shredder ever. And I think Gus G. said the exact same thing about him. And a lot of people have said that. But he's obviously way beyond that. And he's so much more than just a shredder and his music is way beyond that. But the fact is the dude could shred and he really could do it. And it, it's, it's funny. I read a quote from someone one time, I think it was John for who said, I really like Eddie Van Halen, but I don't like anybody who was influenced by him. And I think I understand what he means, even though I took it a little bit personally because I was influenced by Eddie Van Halen. But, um, but the, The Shred thing and the ingve thing, so many people that chased after the sweep arpeggios and that kind of stuff just really couldn't do it that great. And and it's not musical, and it's not fun to listen to. And then you hear Jason do it, and you hear every single note. They're going by at just light speed, and yet you hear every note. (laughs) You really do hear every note, no matter how fast they're going by. But then Jason has told me recently that he gets the same thrill and the same feeling composing music one note at a time with his eyes now as he did when he was shredding away. And what we said was that every note was important. Even when they were going by that fast, they were important. And now they come much more slowly, and yet they're still important. For the concept of him being the greatest shredder ever, the most important thing of that is that he's way more than that.
5: He's on another level than just guitar.
0: That's Dave Lopez who grew up in Richmond with Jason.
5: He's grown so much since he was 17 Now I was 15. Now we're in our 40s and he's still my favorite and still pushing the envelope and still creating amazing things you know. This
0: piece features the great ukulele master Jake Shimabukuro
5: Some of that music, I mean, I, I wish it would had, it, you know, a way to get it to the classical radio stations or something like that. There's so many songs that could be, I listen to some classical stations and I'm like, wow, that would be amazing to have Jason's stuff on there. Hopefully we could be able to submit some stuff to the Grammys. I think it's worth a Grammy uh, because it's incredible record.
0: Back to co-producer Dan Alvarez, you know, before Dan ever met Jason, he heard his music and there wasn't
4: even any guitar on it. The parts that I heard, they were just Jason having programmed these midi parts and it was for uh, End of the Beginning and Life and Death, which were both ultimately on perspective. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, whoever wrote these is really talented. And the irony is my first exposure to Jason, I heard no guitar and yet I was really impressed with him. What that tells you is that it wasn't just about his guitar skills. And it never was, at least not only that. It's about his much deeper musical skills and creativity. Dan told me a lot about the meticulous process involved in getting these notes out of Jason's head and into the real world. You know, he'll say, put an E here, make it a quarter note long, make the velocity higher or lower and put it on a harp sound. And it goes like that. It's just this long painstaking process. By the time I see it, you know, it's already quite advanced. And then we, we kind of go from there.
0: Man, I think Dan used the word tedious about five times as he was telling me about this process. But the interesting part, of course, is after that, how do they create it into a full blown record? Used to be a lot tougher, still tough now, but in the day, the 90s and stuff, they really didn't have internet. It was snail mail, it was Jason getting in the van and going to Dan's wheelchair accessible studio. But for this new record, *Triumphant and
4: Hearts, they found a way to make things a little easier. Fortunately, technology's come quite a long way, uh, particularly in the last decade or two, and I was able to make a couple of decisions that impacted our ability to, to, to deal with this. One was I decided that we were going to do this record ITB, which means in the box. In other words, instead of doing a project in a big studio with uh, a lot of analog boxes and a console and all of this expensive hardware, the computer software has really come to the point where you can replicate a lot of that. People have different opinions about this subject, but for us it was a completely practical decision, which means that the entirety of the record would be done, well, on the production side at least, would be done in the computer. So all I needed to do was replicate my computer setup at his house, so we did that. We we bought him a computer, and I basically set up his computer to be nearly identical to mine in terms of the software that I was using and the plugins that I was using. For the most part, it was very uh, it was a very clear sailing kind of way to to collaborate. So we both ran Logic Pro the entire record was done in Logic Pro, uh, with the exception of a few of the songs which we sent out to mix by other people. And I think um, in a couple of cases, those were mixed in Pro Tools. But 90%, 95% of the record was done in Logic.
0: Dan also told me that a relatively new thing in our lives, Dropbox, this techie way to share files instantly, really helped them too. Because whenever he would adjust a session, it would instantly adjust at Jason's house, too. So they're working on the same thing at all times. But Mike B. reminds Jason that there's something that involves no zeros or ones whatsoever that has made all of this possible.
2: A very specific, practical thing that's made a huge difference is the language system that your dad created. And it's very profound, actually, because, you know, so much of the music that you're... Making today is possible because of technology, but it is in fact the fact that your dad's language system that it uses no technology and it's completely human. It means that you are literally looking people in the eye all day long, and you're interfacing with people on a human level all day long. And I'm convinced that that humanity and that connection to other human beings is a big component uh, as to why you're still here and healthy in the way that you are. And just for people listening, the the language system that Gary invented, it's two eye movements to any letter. So it's a very simple system in its in its structure, and anyone that's dealing with uh, any kind of diminished capacity whose language is an alphabet based language, doesn't have to be English, can learn the system and use it as a means of communication. And I would encourage anyone to sort of there's a video out there called it's called Vocalize, Vocal Eyes. Vocal Eyes the system that Gary invented and there's a YouTube video about it. And I think it's really amazing. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing that your dad invented for you. And I think it's at the really, at the heart of uh, a really good example of sort of the creativity Um, and love and care and kind of unique ways that you guys have figured out how to manage.
0: But even with that system, the physical restrictions are are so obviously tremendous. In Matt Blackett's new article on Jason in Guitar Player Magazine, Steve Vai really kind of sums it up in some cool ways. He says that the real miracle is seeing how such unimaginable limitations don't stop an inspired soul from being creative. He's talking about Jason. He says, you know, guitar skills can be an aid, but they can also be a distraction from the depth of the melody. Vi says that he feels that Jason's limitations may actually give him a clearer shot to the musical imagination.
1: Steve Vai thinks it is a, a divine... You know, Steve Vi thinks it's a divine awareness or maybe presence. I think he might be right god or something but that all started with the the magic that my parents gave me they made the little things in life seem so magical when i was tiny a tiny boy and for some reason that stuck with me and somehow draws others magic to me. It is just fun and good life. Sometimes, you know, I have mostly been physically comfortable, too. That helps to be physically comfortable. Lately, I have had some sickness that is scary.
3: We are one, like fire and the sun, and like raindrops in the sea, we're gone in one, two,
0: Yeah, it's true what Jason was saying there. You know, he was under the weather when we saw him. He was bumming because he was on these antibiotics, but I hope he's rocked through all that by now. So I love this tune off the new record. It's called We Are One. Jason Becker on lead guitar. The funky Dave Shule on the funk guitar. Orion Salazar on the bass. One of my favorite bass players. Javier Torres on the drums. Dan Alvarez on the keys. I love that lead vocal, that's Steve Knight. What a pocket. Steve Knight is from Flipside, great band. Dave Lopez, who we heard from and will hear from again, is also of Flipside fame. that some of Jason's lead playing on this tune was more subdued longer notes than some of his more blazing solos
1: it was in one of the last things I recorded so I couldn't couldn't play fast blessing in disguise
0: Okay, that's funny, Jason. ALS is a blessing in disguise. What a fucking optimist! Mike recalls another song recorded around that time that he really likes that was released on the album Perspective. A blues tune called Meet Me in the Morning.
2: That's one of my favorite, personally. That's one of my favorite things you ever played. Is that Meet Me in the Morning guitar part? It's just, and I know you couldn't move as well, but the emotion in that track is amazing. You yeah. know, so you're right. There was a blessing in there too, in a weird way, in disguise. Yeah.
0: I like hearing how people came into Jason's life, and uh, with Mike B, it was interesting because I think Mike had seen Jason and was blown away by cacophony, but he got to know Jason when Jason noticed Mike shredding on a mutual friend's demo tape. However, when Mike shreds though, it's not on guitar.
2: I think what happened was Jason heard this guitar-y sounding thing, but it clearly wasn't a guitar, but it sounded like a guitar.
0: I met Mike right around the same time and invited him to join my high school band, Electric Spaghetti, because he blazed on that thing. It was not a guitar. It was a Yamaha MIDI instrument, a wind controller that kind of looks more like a soprano saxophone than a guitar. And he would run it through a Rockman preamp for that tone, which was just so sick.
2: so um, we ended up you know he he got we got in contact with me and uh so the and then he came over to my place and uh the first day we got together um we recorded uh a version of the song rain um on my little keyboard and my little you know digital four track and we didn't know at that time you know what was to come and so that little scratch Thing that we did ended up being the version of Rain that actually ended up being on the record. So it was, it was really cool, like from the very beginning, like from the very first time yeah. we got together, it was about music and making music and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, Jason and Mike, man, they've had a million adventures together. Mike came down there soon after Jason moved to L.A. after joining David Lee Roth's band. And they used to hang out. They recall a time they went to Guitar Center and the two of them were shredding, drawing a crowd. Jason on guitar, Mike on the wind controller. If you
2: just walked into that Guitar Center and saw Jason playing and... Not that I'm some great player, but it was different what I did. It was pretty interesting this thing, and to sort of see these these two people doing something, one controller doing all this, it's a really cool thing. And I remember at that time thinking that was probably a pretty cool thing. Like to just yeah. you know, we had a we had a really fun time, but just the idea of that experience, yeah, you know. You must have had an audience pretty quick. I would it,
0: think people watching that. Uh,
1: I remember getting crush on a girl working there. We, w- we got flowers. Ah, so you guys went and got flowers for her? Huh. Nice
0: touch. How did that pan out?
1: Didn't. She, W, A, was a little too H, O, hot. <laughs> she was a little too hot.
0: <laughs> Not for the sexiest man alive.
1: F, you, funny.
0: <laughs> now, when I hear that phrase, the sexiest man alive, I always think of Dave Lopez, who uses that on Jason quite a bit and they go back so far. Turns out they met through Jason's brother,
5: Aaron. Aaron was a guy I used to see in a bus. Uh, We used to take a bus in Richmond, the 68 bus, and I would see this guy with long hair, looked like he was James Hetfield. He always had Fangora magazines and Starlock magazine. I don't know how, how, if I answered an ad, I don't remember, but I ended up at their house and jamming with Aaron. And me and Aaron, we became really good friends because we liked, science fiction and all that nerdy stuff and then uh Jason came out you know I was in a room by myself warming up and he happened to walk by and he said he gave me a compliment he said yeah, that sounds really good and he's really positive you know very nice and just you know for someone that was so young and, and the level he was as a guitar player and artist man it, it was pretty uh surreal already knew who he was so the legend of Jason Becker started before any album's or shrapnel and any of that stuff. I I believe I was like a ninth grader or eighth grader. I would hear about this dude that, you know, that played ingve three times faster than ingve. you know? So in our neighborhood, you always had the hottest guitar players. You know, there was so many great players you know known guys but i would hear about this do that and this is back when yngwie rising force had just come out and uh you know he was like the greatest guitar player at, in the world at that time so i uh heard about it and then one day uh you know somebody came one of my friends julio marino came to my house and he played me a uh, recording he goes dude i heard this this band with marty friedman and jason becker and all jason i recognized the name and it was the speed metal symphony it was on kusf and I heard I was like, "Oh, this is fucking crazy, right?" And to realize that he was from down the street from Richmond was even crazier, you know. So, somebody that was on our in our hood that that uh, you know got a record deal and was on the radio, you know, and we were just kids. He, he must have been 17 when I first met him. So, I think "Perpetual Burn" had, was about to be released when I met him, and and I remember getting that record, and that record changed my life. Man. The song, Air, was something that I was able to share with my family. Like, look at, listen to this guy, you know? My mom heard that record and gave me money for lessons. So I started taking lessons from Jason. and. And one of the things that you know i couldn't really play like that and and so technical and just he was he was you know so advanced you know and uh the one thing i got from him as a teacher what i would say would be he taught me how to be myself he's like look man if you're good at whatever you're good at do what you do You, you know i remember my teachers wanted me to learn how to play jazz and he's like do you even like jazz i'm like no then why concentrate on that be yourself you know basically don't copy anybody you have your own thing you know he and and you know obviously i learned some you know a couple licks here and there and stuff but most of the time i just wanted to hang out and, and pick his brain and it's like an inspiration thing you know because we're both kids i was 15 he was 17 and uh it was pretty surreal being young having someone that talented you know and then obviously he became he became know, a legendary
0: man what wonderful advice that was from jason to dave because you know what dave went on to do what he loves playing in flip side man he played a solo and played in the band and their biggest song man it's already over 37 million spins on spotify and dave is playing lead guitar on it Okay, but wait, Dave. What about your story about Jason playing two or three times faster than Ingve when he was sixteen or seventeen? So the story goes,
5: he played faster than Ingve. So his dad Gary uh, was telling, you know, my kid is so good he could play anything. And somebody at his work said, oh, okay, if he's so good, why don't you have him play this? So he gave him a recording of Ingve. I think it was a Steeler uh, from the Steeler album when he was with that uh, with Ron Keel and them. And so he. he I guess the guy sped at forty, not forty-five, so it's double speed or whatever. Jason, like a crazy madman, he's such a perfectionist, such a freak. He actually learned that shit faster than Ingve did on the album. So when Ingve came out, Rising Force record came out, he already knew how to play that. It was easy for him because he 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 had to slow down to learn the the jams, you know.
0: I think when I got to know Dave Lopez, it was starting a few years ago, several years now, when uh, he did the first of three not dead yet concerts, benefit concerts for Jason, because you know what, ALS is not cheap. And man, the first one, he just hit it so far out of the park, it was like nuts. He had all these guitar players playing, Steve Lukather, Marty Friedman, Michael Lee, Ferkins, Ben Woods, Jeff Watson, almost too many to remember, and this guy too.
3: Hello, hello. so much for coming to
0: this event. Really we're talking about Joe Satriani and we're
3: doing this for Jason. First time I heard him, it scared
0: the shit out of me. <laughs> you know, going back to that first show which was at Slims in San Francisco, it wasn't even just the amazing roster that Dave put together with help from uh, Matt Blackett and a couple other industry people. It was the energy. That thing was like so far oversold, man, there was like two or three hundred people over fire code, or so it seemed. people hanging off the rafters, the side of the stage just full of people, people up in the front of the stage, there all night because they knew if they gave up their spot, they would never get it back. It was like rabid audience. It was just great. It's like a punk rock show. Those are always the best kind.) <laughs> Of course, Dave was not necessarily the first person to come up with an idea to do a concert for Jason, but he's one of the only people that ever followed through on his promise to do so.
5: At the time, I was in a band called Flipside, and we were signed, and we did a lot of cool stuff. We were touring, and I got to meet a lot of people through Flipside. And at the time, you know, I kind of have a big mouth, you know? And, and so, especially when, it, you know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, fuck it, Jay-. Like, I. I'm always shooting ideas. I'm like an idea person, you know, and I'm like, why don't why don't I I'll, I'll put together a Not Dead Yet concert. So I started calling my close friends, you know, uh, Matt Blackett, who, you know, from Guitar Player Magazine, he helped me start the Not Dead Yet by reaching out to artist. And then I hit up my buddy, Gary Avila, who uh, works with Papa Roach. He used to work with Papa Roach. He's uh, been in the industry for a while. And uh, we started just, it's a collaborative thing. It wasn't like I did it alone, you know? i We all worked on this, you know? And, and we put our heart into it and it became crazy because everybody said yes. It was the most beautiful day I've ever been a part of, you know, and, and I'm just a small piece of the puzzle because everybody, it, it was everybody's concert. We played. We made a concert for Jason, you know, f- for his style, for making it so it's not a super shred fest, guys showing off. But it was music for him to to, to enjoy the guitar, you know, because uh, you know if you if you only get shredding out of Jason's music, you're only miss you're missing a lot of a, out of him, you know. Uh, he's b- more than that, and and he love he's shred is part of his his style and what he's known for, and he's a a, a creator of that. But he's more than that, and, uh, he's, and he's grown, as you can see his new music, he's grown so much as an artist. So when I put together these shows, I always try to make it so they have a flamenco guy. You know, if Ben Woods did a flamenco set, you know, you, Jude, you did it, sh- you know, played with Hotford Teacher.
0: You know what, that's exactly right. Dave had me play for Jason, one of Jason's own songs. It's Showtime, great David Lee Roth track that he did with Dave. And I played it with Hot for Teacher featuring Randy Monroe on lead vocals. And now that I look back on it, I see I did the opposite of what Jason would do. I showed the world that I could play twice as slow as Jason Becker. We're going to actually play a song that Jason wrote with David Lee Roth. Pardon my French, but this shit is crazy. He was 20 years old when he played this. Just for a second, I want to play you a little bit of the solo. And we're going to play it half speed because this is what I've been kind of struggling with for the last six weeks, if you know what I mean.
3: Check this out.
0: If you want to hear how I did playing it at full speed, as well as you know, any of the other performances from that evening and the others, well check out Bo Grant's show online called Full Shred Ahead. He recorded all that stuff. Thank you, Bo. You can find Full Shred Ahead on SoundCloud and MixCloud, especially MixCloud. And again, it's Bo Grant. Bo is spelled B-E-A-U. What a bro, Bo. But right now, let's hear how the solo goes at full speed as originally played by 20-year-old Jason Becker. So yeah, those Not Dead Yet benefit concerts were just so amazing. So many great players there. Greg Howe was there too, Brian Spaulding. Steve Morris and Gretchen Mann, they were definitely at the second one performing. I had to ask Jason how they made him feel.
1: It was surreal. Just a lot of of gratitude.
0: Mike remembers a comment that Michael E. Furkins made that kind of summed it up for him. The
2: comment he made was, he said, dude, he goes, backstage is unbelievable here it's like everyone has the most perfect attitude. Like every, like the amount of love here and like why everybody's here, why ever, he said it's the best environment I've ever been around. And I think
0: that was the great thing about those shows. It's I mean, so true. Like right? there is, yeah, there's nothing but positive attitude and smiles. There's no bullshit that night whatsoever from out in the audience to the deepest bowels of Slim's backstage. Yeah, it was magical. I mean,
2: it's truly magical, you know? And I, and I think that it was one of those moments where... Both, you right, from audience perspective, um, which is where I was, obviously, from players' perspective. Yeah, everybody knew that something really, really special was going on, like an unforgettable special thing.
0: And the real party was downstairs, Jason. You should have been there, man. I'm just kidding.
1: Man, I'm b i I'm bummed. <laughs>
0: now, of course, the question you always come back to with Jason Becker is, how did he get so fucking good? I figure we gotta start by asking his father, Gary, for maybe some early childhood insights.
7: Back when I had uh, a fantasy of becoming uh, another Segovia, so I studied classical guitar. I'm an artist, and I just love art, music, poetry, everything, and we, I was surrounded with it by my parents, and we surrounded our kids with it, not to make them be it, but there it is, and those that love it, grab it. And uh, so after studying classical guitar, I studied with a student of Andrew Segovia, And I was going to San Francisco State, I stopped off at Sherman and Clay, and they had these Ramirez guitars for $1,500. This was in 1967. So, oh man, I wanted one because I had a cheap little uh, classical guitar, and I wanted this. So, Jason's mom, my wife Patricia, we, Talked to my parents, and they agreed to co-sign for a loan. So I bought that guitar and paid it off in three years. And it was signed by, it's signed in 1967, Ramirez signed inside. It's just really a cool guitar, and it's the Segovia model, Ramirez guitar. So all the time uh, Fat was pregnant with Jason in the womb, I'm playing guitar everywhere. And as she's falling asleep, I'll play some stuff. So I think he heard it. in there and he was born and i think he was born looking for what made that noise so for a few years i wouldn't let him touch it because this was like a rolls royce you know i don't want to get a scratch on it and of course now it's 60 years old and it's got some dingers and scratches and that's the character that years of playing is but um he just he loved that guitar and he wanted to touch it but i wouldn't let him and one day I let him touch it and there's a picture of him that was magic to how old, him. How old was he? Do you Ish. remember how old you were Jason? <laughs> like four maybe, five? Old enough to not use it as a drum. Yeah, he loved it and he loved the guitar. He, he just did and he, uh, he wouldn't want to put it down. The older he got, the more he held it.
0: Admit it, did you ever play that guitar with a pick? Jason, did you ever disgrace that finance <laughs> with a plectrum?
1: Why? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. Uli played it, but no pick.
7: So I like to have uh, good players play it. I'm going to have to get you to play it. I'm not worthy. <laughs> ben uh, Woods played it. Uli played it. Who else played it, Jason? Eddie Van Halen? Steve Hunter? Yeah, so it's got some good vibes. I'm just hoping that some of those vibes will sink into my fingers when I play Jason played it his whole life, yeah.
0: Gary is proud to have given Jason his first ever guitar lesson, but admits that Jason never ever came back for lesson two. So, of course, I had to ask Jason, how does somebody get so damn good at something? Anything. And I guess his advice kind of mirrors what he told Dave Lopez back in the day.
1: I guess lots of L... Oh, love for a lot of love for it is the simple answer
0: find something you really love and go for that huh yeah
7: as an observer uh find something you love pursue it and actually become rather insanely obsessed by it jason would come to the dinner table with a guitar in his lap he'd be playing it. He'd go to bed at night with a guitar on his body and he'd fall asleep playing it. Later on when he was down in LA driving his own car around there, he had a little electric guitar, one of those minis he kept on his lap. Come to a red light, play a few scales right on your lap. So obsession is not necessarily a bad word. You, you sort of have to do it, but I think Jason is correct. Love first and then be obsessed by that love. You just practice so much that it just becomes deeply embedded in your soul. You're just There's just not a moment when you're not with that love.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because if you zoom out and look at Jason, he's really a hero in two realms. We all know him as this amazing guitar player and composer, but just in ALS at large, he's like the Jimi Hendrix of ALS. He's astonishingly good at battling this disease. He's beat all the odds for so long. But I seem to remember a few years ago, he really didn't want to be known as an inspiration in that realm so much. He really wanted to focus on music, which I totally respect. But now that it's been 10 years, I I asked him, is it still the case about not wanting to be an ALS inspiration?
1: No, not, not anymore. I really hope my story gives hope to others but i don't really feel like like i did it i don't really feel like i did it myself it takes so much help and love i get weak like anyone would i guess i have happiness and energy It is, it's a big circle. We all, we all need each other to keep going.
2: Another person that worked really hard on the record is our conductor, Shota Nakama. Shota is a friend and fan of Jason's and they met in that context originally, but it turns out that Shota's specialty is creating guitar and orchestral music for video games. And so when we were looking at who we should use to do some of the orchestration work um, for some of the orchestral pieces like Fantasy Weaver and Once Upon a Melody and Triumphant Heart, Shota seemed like a really good choice and um, he ended up spending close to a year working with us, with Jason and with Dan Alvarez, on fine-tuning these arrangements, creating the orchestrations. He came out to California to Jason's house. We did a rehearsal with some members of the San Francisco State University String Quartet and then Shota uh, flew out to Bulgaria. He contracted the orchestra out there and he conducted those sessions and um, those are really cool too because we had to figure out how to maximize the time and get everybody's input and the arrangement we ended up using was a combination of Skype so we could see the orchestra and then um, something called Source Live which allows us to have a lossless audio stream so we could hear high quality high resolution audio And then Shota had a team in Japan, then another team there in Bulgaria, along with the other people there. And then Jason, Dan Alvarez and myself were listening at Jason's house in California. And then we made comments by typing them into a Google sheet that was uh, also sitting on an iPad next to Shota. So at the end of every take, he could look down, he could see the comments from us in real time and make adjustments. It was just amazing. Everything having to do with the orchestration, uh, Shota did uh, as a gift to Jason and to the project, and I just think he's amazing and and really made an unbelievably huge difference and then also supervised the editing of those files once all the material was gathered. So uh, big shout-out and thank you to him.
0: That's right, people. Just look at the lengths to which people go to help Jason out. And if you want to do something for Jason, well, it's so simple.
1: It really helps if you buy the album. Thanks.
0: It really is a monumental achievement, this album, this tour de force. I totally agree with Lopez. Needs to be Grammy nominated. I'm sure you would agree as well. And if you're a Jason Becker fan, well, Dave tells me there's also like all this Killer unreleased stuff that Jason has videos as well. So I look forward to some of that hopefully coming out in future years. But this album, man, we haven't even really scratched the surface on this episode. This song is called Valley of Fire. Let me switch screens over here and tell you all the players on this song alone. Joe Bonamassa, Neil Sean, Steve Vai, Paul Gilbert, Marty Friedman, Michael E. Perkins, Matthias Eklund, Greg Howe, Jeff Loomis, Richie Kotzen, Gus G, I'm laughing here because it's just comical. Steve Hunter, Jason's buddy from the David Lee Roth days. Ben Woods, they're all on this track alone. And if you want to hear the solos they take on this song, you're going to have to go buy that record. Shit, I actually play a little rhythm guitar somewhere in there on this track, but I digress. Other people on the record that we didn't get to, Alex Seavers, Joe Satriani, Steve Morse, Guthrie Govan, all have amazing moments on Triumphant Hearts. Got to grab your copy. And say hi to Jason Becker on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. He's got all the sites, all the pages. Let him know you love this podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jude Gold. Once again, keep it alive till you're 95.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for being here. Look at all the people here tonight, Jason. We love you, brother. Oh, by the way, Jason... I forgot one more thing, it's Showtime!